Welcome to the Celebration Church Podcast. We are so glad you've joined us and we hope you are encouraged by today's message. Finish up our uh, do part two of our lesson on the fall feast. Last last week we talked about um, Rosh Hashanah, the feast of trumpets, and um, gosh, there's so much in that feast. And I want to wrap up today talking about the Day of Atonement and also the Feast of Booths, the Feast of Tabernacles, and how those have been partially fulfilled, but also how they have are yet to be fulfilled at the return of Christ. And so let's just pray, and then we'll go straight into the Word. Okay, Father God, we love your Word so much. And Lord, we just um, lean into what you want to say to us today. God, we give you praise because you are so faithful to your covenant with us. Your faithfulness is so great. And when we are not faithful, you remain faithful because you can't deny who you are and you are the always eternally faithful father. And so Lord, as we lean into your word today, I pray that you would reveal more and more of yourself and more and more of Jesus to us as we go through these fall feasts in Jesus' name, amen. Okay, so just really quick review. Last week was Rosh Hashanah. And if you can put the slides up of the, the dates of the fall feast for this year, do you have those? Okay, so this year, we're the, um, these are the dates of the fall feast. We had Rosh Hashanah, that was on September 9th. And then uh, at sunset, September 9th, we go into the 10 days of awe. So right now we're in the middle of the 10 days of awe or in them. And then Wednesday, September 19th is Yom Kippur. That's gonna be this Wednesday. And then starting next Sunday, September 23rd through Sunday, September 30th is the Feast of Tabernacles. So this is kind of where we are in the, in the midst of everything. And um, those are the fall feasts and all of, them report, most all of them point to the return of Christ. The spring feasts are all about what he has already accomplished and the fall feasts are about mostly what he is going to accomplish at his return. And today I wanna talk about specifically the um, Feast of Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement. And I also wanna talk about Sukkot. You can say that, Sukkot. Sukkot. Okay, so I hope I'm not butchering these names too much. So the Day of Atonement. Um, So this is kind of cool. The Day of Atonement is called Yom Kippur, and atonement means covering. But another way you could look at the word atonement is you could look at it as at-one-ment. At-one-ment. If you look at the word atonement, you break it up, you could look at it at-one-ment. Because really and truly, it is about reconciliation, It is about God reconciling himself to us and us reconciling ourselves to each other. And um, it is about him cleansing, it's about the cleansing component of our, of our redemption. So, you know, you've, you've, I'm sure you've heard the verse in First John that says, if we confess our sins, he is merciful and just to forgive us all of our sins and to cleanse us of all unrighteousness. So look at that. If you look at that verse, there's two components going on here. There's the merciful part that forgives us our sins, all right? But then there's the just part that's about cleansing our sins. And we can see this acted out in a very, very, literal way, in a very, you know, experiential way, in a very prophetic way, at the, in the way that the Day of Atonement was observed. And so I'm not going to get into the Day of Atonement so much because Stovall's already preached several messages about it. He's going to talk about it again next week. But I do want to give you kind of an overview of what, it, what's it, what it's about and give you some kind of facts about it. So the first thing about the Day of Atonement is that it's the most holy and solemn day of the year. In fact, all over the world, even Jews who are not observant will stop work on this day and they will observe the Day of Atonement. It is a very serious and solemn day. And during the time of the temple, it was only on this day every single year that the priests could enter into the Holy of Holies to atone for the sins of Israel and to cleanse the camp of sin. 
And then it's also a day that God calls on his people to humble themselves and to fast and to pray. And prophetically, Yom Kippur is the day that point, points to the restoration of Israel as um, that points back to the, in the day that the Jewish people accept their Messiah. So two things happen on this day, okay, on the day of atonement. One thing that happened was atonement or cleansing, sanctification, right? There was a, the sanctification, there was the mercy, there was the forgiveness. And the other thing that happened was judgment. So there's two components. And if you'll remember, if you read the book of um, Leviticus chapter 16, one through four, and also you can find this in Leviticus chapter 23, they show you the instructions on how, we are to, uh, how the people were to observe the day of atonement. And Soval has preached about this before, but if, if you remember, there was two goats, right? And you were to take two goats and you would cast lots. And one of the goats would be for God, for Yahweh, and then one would be for Azazel, Azazel. <laughs> one would be for Azazel, is that Azazel? Azazel, okay, I didn't practice that one. Azazel, that was out in the desert. So the one that was for, for God, the priest would lay his hands on it and they would, they would sacrifice that one, right? That was for the sin, that was to sanctify. That was, the, that was, the, that was for God, that, that one would die and that represented Jesus. But then the other one, he would lay his hands on that one, that goat, and they would send it, they, it wouldn't die. They would go out into the desert and the Bible says this one is for Azazel, okay? And we'll see that again in other prophecies throughout the Bible. And so there's two things that have to happen. And this is really important because this also happens on the cross. There is the dying for sin, so that's the mercy, but then there is putting the sins of the people on the goat and sending it back to where it came from. So you remember Stovall teaching about this, where we take the sins, put it on the goat, and we send the sin out of the camp, back to where it came from, back where it belongs, away from us, away from the church, away from the people of God. And so this has happened, been fulfilled already in Christ. We know that Jesus died for our sins, right? He's already fulfilled that. We're already atoned for. We are already forgiven. And we know that Jesus took the wrath of God for us. Our sins were judged on him. So on the cross, just like on the day of atonement, just like on the day of atonement, there was mercy and there was judgment. Mercy to Israel, judgment on the goat, all right? On the day that Jesus died on the cross, two things happened. Mercy was poured out on us. Because, because Jesus stood in our place, right? We received mercy, humanity, throughout all time, for all ages, until the end of, end of time, until Jesus comes back, all of us receive mercy. For every sin that we have committed, for every sin that we will commit, for every sin that your children and grandchildren will ever commit, as long as they put their trust in the Lamb of God that takes away the sins of the world, their sin is mercifully atoned for. So, so when we say that God is faithful to his covenant, he's faithful to his covenant. That is the covenant he made with us, that he will forgive our sins and throw them as far as the east is to the west. And I'm telling you, when, when I look at myself and I know the sins, not just that I commit, honestly, we all co commit sins, but you know, our thoughts can be sins, our words can be sins, our motives can, there's so much in us that is just broken by iniquity that we don't even actually realize. The Bible says the heart is deceitful above all else. Who can know it? There are things that we might think are right that are completely off target. I mean, if you really thought about trying to repent of every sin, you might actually give yourself a psychosis because it, could, it can really mess you up. But thank God we don't have to do that because Jesus just took care of all of it. He just took care of all of it. And all, we don't have to know and renounce and dig up every sin from our past and everything we do that might be a sin and everything that our grandfathers did and our grandmothers did. We don't have to do that. You can, 
Um, it's okay if you do, if you, wanna, if you wanna explore that, okay? And find out where there might be some linkages or patterns passed down in your life. But can I tell you this? You don't have to. All you have to do is look to what Jesus did. You have to look to what he who was righteous and had no sin became sin on our behalf so that we could be the righteousness of God in him. He received every curse for us. So we don't have to worry about anything that we're, he just took care of it and that's all we need to know. We need to put our faith in him. So that part was fulfilled already for us. And in order for God to show that mercy to us, right? Because God is not, he's not just merciful, but he's also just. What does just mean? Just means that, that there must be, that faithfulness and goodness would be rewarded. It also means that unfaithfulness and evil and wickedness must be punished. So when you see, like maybe you're watching a crime drama or maybe you're watching a news report and something bad happens, people say, they often say the victims or the family of a victim, let's say of a shooting, would say, I want justice. I want justice. I want justice. What they mean is not that I want this person to go free, obviously. What they mean is I want this person who did this evil thing to be punished because that's actually what justice includes. Justice includes letting the oppressed, the wrongfully oppressed go free also includes bringing those who are causing the oppression to judgment. And so for true justice to happen and for God to remain morally upright and remain above all and retain his character of who he is as God, he, didn't, he couldn't only just show us mercy and then go, and well, these other things, I'm just gonna, you know, slide them under the rug. I'm just gonna forget it. I'll just excuse it because I love you guys. No, that's what we do because we can't deal with justice and true justice because we're not God. <laughs> but God, he doesn't do that. If he is going to excuse somebody and show mercy, then he also has to satisfy the justice component, the judgment component. And so for us to be shown mercy, Jesus had to receive judgment. So he, when he was on the cross, he became our sin. He became pornography. He became lust. He became stealing. He became lying. He became abuse. He became oppression. He became greed. He became every sin that could ever happen. He took it within himself. And then at that moment, God judged it. He poured every bit of his angry wrath on his son so that we could receive mercy. Because God is perfect. And for him to be a God of justice, in other words, for him to be a just and fair judge does not mean that he winks at sin and just throws out mercy. Just like our justice system would not be just if we did not prosecute criminals. <laughs> no, it, justice means the punishment of wrongdoing. And that is going to happen at the end. <laughs> and right now we're living in, the, in, in this time where Jesus is pouring, God's pouring out mercy and pouring out mercy. And we actually as believers live in, in this time where we have been shown mercy and also our sins have been judged in Christ and we're living in this. But prophetically speaking, prophetically speaking in a, in a chronological sense, Jesus has done the mercy part, right? But he has not completed the justice part, the judgment part. So when Jesus came into the temple after he was tempted in the wilderness, he read the verse from Isaiah, the spirit of the Lord God is upon me because he has anointed me too. And he goes through the things to give sight to the blind, to preach the gospel to the poor. And he goes through the thing, he says, and to announce the day of, of the favor of our God. To announce the day of God's goodness, to announce the day of God's mercy. 
But you know, the second half of that says, and the day of the vengeance of our God. (laughs) To pronounce the year of the Lord's favor. And if he had completed the verse, he would have said, and the day of the vengeance of our God. It's almost like Jesus left a dot, dot, dot right there. (laughs) To proclaim the day of the Lord's favor, dot, dot, dot. You can finish the rest of it, people sitting in the synagogue, because you know what this says. You've heard this a lot, but I'm here to tell you that I am here right now as the Messiah in this season, in this time, in this era, in this Kairos, to proclaim the year of God's favor, the time of God's favor. It's not time for the day of the vengeance of our God yet. But the time for the day of the vengeance of our God is coming and make no mistake about it. And we talked last week about how Jesus, he came first in his first coming as a lamb, but when he returns, he's gonna return as the lion. And when that day comes, we wanna be on the right side of judgment, right? We wanna be on the right side of judgment. I know I do. So I wanna um, just read a little bit from Leviticus about how the day of atonement was observed. And just, I wanna really highlight some of the expectations that God put on his people, Israel, when they would observe this, and mainly to show you how seriously God takes this. And so I'm just gonna read one verse about this. There's many more that I could read, but I just wanna focus on this. Leviticus 23, 26 through 32 says, the Lord said to Moses, the 10th day of the seventh month is the day of atonement. Hold a sacred assembly and deny yourselves and present a food offering to the Lord. So in other words, I want you to fast, but I want you to give a food offering to God. So bring something to eat, but then we leave it with God. Do not do any work on that day because it is the day of atonement. When atonement is made for you before the Lord your God, those who do not deny themselves on that day must be cut off from their people. I will destroy from among their people anyone who does any work on that day. That is pretty serious. <laughs> I, don't, I would not want God, I don't think I would be inclined to do any work on that day. Um, he says, you shall do no work at all. This will be a lasting ordinance for the generations to come wherever you live. It is a day of Sabbath rest for you and you must deny yourselves from morning, from the evening of the ninth day of the month until the following evening you are to observe your Sabbath. So there's a couple of things I wanna highlight. One is you're to deny yourselves. That means it's a time to fast. The second thing is that you are to do no work. These two things are repeated over and over again. So it's a Sabbath, but it's like an ultra Sabbath. And when he says do no work, like on a regular Sabbath, it would be only the things that are necessary, the certain kind of work. But on this Sabbath, it was a don't do anything. Sit still, do some repentance, fast and deny yourself. And the third thing is that this is to be a lasting ordinance. This is something no matter where you live, you need to practice this. And the reason is because it was, it was showing the people, this is the redemption that's coming for you. And it reminds us that the judgment is come, that what Jesus did for us, right? Which is amazing. But then it also tells us the urgency of looking for his return. It reminds us of that. So I'm not suggesting that God is gonna kill you if you don't fast or <laughs> you know, that he's gonna cut you off from among the land of the living if you do any work. What I'm saying is I wanna show you how very seriously God took this. It was a very serious time for him and the nation of Israel. It was quiet everywhere except for the sound of mourning <laughs> because they would mourn. And um, I like that God says here, he says, I want you to to deny yourself. And other translations say, humble yourself before the Lord. I want you to humble yourself before the Lord. And um, I wanna talk a little bit about humbling yourself because that's not something we do too much in our day and age. And part of it is not because I think we're a prideful people, but because I think we're an insecure people. And um, when you're insecure, you don't wanna humble yourself because when you humble yourself, you're afraid people might see you for who you really are. And that's very vulnerable. 
And when you're insecure, you have to build up this image of yourself that you want everybody else to see. And when you humble yourself, you are tearing down that image, right? And there's a whole other thing that I could go into about image, tearing down the images, but I'm not going to do that. That is for another service. But if you get it, you get it. But, um, you know, humbling yourself is important. And I wanna, I wanna talk about this phrase, even humble yourself. Because sometimes I think we over-focus on, being, on everything being authentic. I'm gonna say that again. Sometimes I think we focus too much on everything being authentic. So I've heard people say, yeah, you know, when I'm in church, I mean, I don't wanna raise my hands unless it's authentic. Like, you know, I don't feel like raising my hands sometimes and I want, to be, I want it to come out of my heart. I don't want it to be just going through the motions. And I understand the intention behind that is noble, but I would love to free you from that intention because it's a wrong intention and it's based on false, falsehood, okay? Your body and your emotions are not supposed to be the captain of your team. <laughs> so I don't think there's ever gonna come a day when you're like, you know what I feel like today? Really feel like not eating anything and humbling myself. I actually don't think that day is ever gonna come. So this is why God doesn't say, if you feel led to fast, please fast. If you feel led to be hum become humble, please be humble. He says, you, let me tell you who he's talking to, your renewed mind and your will that is activated by your renewed mind and the commandments of the Lord God. This is why you take control over your emotions and you take control over your body and you put them in a position of humility, whether you feel like it or not. God couldn't care less if you're, if you're humbling yourself authentically. Just humble yourself. Authenticity will come. It will. I promise you. You know, and, and that includes position, like kneeling down before the Lord, putting your face on the ground. Like all, you could look at that and go, oh, what a show. But really the way God looks at it is these people know my commandments. They love my commandments. They love to obey me. And even though they don't feel like it, they are doing it. And God blesses that. We place way too much emphasis on being authentic. You know what I'm saying? Sometimes what is authentic about us, we actually don't need to show. Jesus actually died on the cross for what is authentic about you. You don't wanna see my authentic. <laughs> Jesus was put to death because of your authentic. Your authentic is sinful. Your authentic is willful. Your authentic is far from God. Your authentic is selfish. Your authentic is overly ambitious. Your authentic is performance-based. Your authentic is perfectionism. Your authentic is judgmental. Your, judgment, your, your authentic is false religion. That's your authentic. I don't wanna see your authentic. Frankly, I would love to see Jesus through you. And I will speak for myself. <laughs> that you would actually prefer to see Jesus through me. I promise you don't need to see my authentic either. It's not pretty. It's the same as your authentic. <laughs> it's ugly. It is. <laughs> so why do we humble? I wanna just, a couple of reasons, like three reasons, three good reasons to humble yourself if you're having a little trouble with humbling yourself. And I think these fly, you know, these fly and the, these are countercultural in every culture throughout the history of mankind, humbling yourself as a practice is not like, was not looked upon as good, right? We always, people were obsessed and still are obsessed with seeking greatness. In fact, we hear the thing, I wanna do something great for God. Well, greatness is not a fruit of the spirit. You know what is? Goodness. 
So you worry about being good and let God put greatness on it if he wants to. Take the pressure off. (laughs) You don't have to do anything great for God. You just do the good that's in front of you to do today. You worry about that. And if God wants to make something great, he will. And if he doesn't, he doesn't hold you, he's not gonna hold you accountable for like, you didn't do something great for me. He's like, I did something great for you. You couldn't do anything great in the first place. I didn't expect you to do something great. I gave you my spirit. I just want you to walk in the good works that I prepared beforehand for you to walk in them. You don't worry about being great. You don't need to worry about being great. So three things about humbling, three reasons why we can humble ourselves. One, I put here, these are, not, these are just my personal experience things, so I hope that that's okay with you. But one is humbling yourself as a means of taking ownership. When we humble ourselves, we say, I know I'm wrong. Can we say that right now? I know I'm wrong, your turn. I know I'm wrong. I did something bad. It's not too hard in a group. <laughs> but when we're facing a person to whom we've done something wrong, when we are admitting that we're, we've done something wrong and we know we're gonna receive consequences, that's a bit harder. But do you know that the ability to take responsibility and ownership is one of the highest marks of maturity? A person who can say, my bad. I'm the one who missed my deadline and that's why this project is not turned in on time. My bad. I'm the one who threw the first stone in this argument. My bad. I'm the one who didn't tell the truth and that's why this statement is not reconciled. That in itself, in spite of the wrongdoing, the ability to own it builds maturity in you. And the mark of immaturity is an inability to take responsibility. Think of our kids. When we send them out as mature adults, what are we saying? You are now responsible for yourself. If you get in a wreck, have fun paying your higher insurance rates. If you default on your rent, have fun looking for a place to live. If you spend all your money on video games, have fun looking for something to eat that, day, that week. Because guess what's not happening? I'm not bailing you out. Why? Because you are now mature. You better hope you're mature, because if you aren't, you will learn very quickly to become mature. <laughs> Hunger has a way of doing that to you. We actually define maturity by a person's ability to accept responsibility and ownership. Humility, humbling ourselves, is a way to practice that and make it like not so affrontive. It shouldn't be affrontive to us to accept responsibility, but because we are human beings and we don't like to admit that we're wrong, it's a problem. Humility allows us to practice that. The other thing is that humbling ourselves tears down pride and makes way for reconciliation. Pride keeps us from admitting we're wrong. That's another thing that keeps us from admitting that we're wrong. And when we can't admit that we're wrong, when we can't say, you know, we got into a fight and it was me that said the first thing. I put the first dog in the fight. You know what happens? The path to reconciliation is shut down. And we can't be reconciled to each other. So when we can take, you know, get rid of our pride and humble ourselves Not only is that good for us to see ourselves in the light of truth, right? But it's also good for our relationships. And the better we get at accepting responsibility for the things that we have done wrong to each other, the more at peace our relationships will be, amen? And the last thing is humbling ourselves. um, Actually, when we confess our wrongdoings, it kills shame. I talk about this a lot. When we confess what we have done wrong to God or to each other, 
it brings our shame into the light. And once darkness comes to the light, it loses its power. Shame is part of darkness. Adam and Eve were not ashamed in the garden. The human soul was never meant to carry shame. That's why it's so debilitating. We're not meant to carry it. They were naked and unashamed. I can't imagine a more shameful way to be, walking around naked, doing stuff, you know, gardening and stuff, like, well. But nobody needs to see that, but they weren't. No, I think they were clothed in the glory of God. There's probably some bad theology that I'm saying here, so don't like build a whole doctrine on that. But what I am saying is this, we were not meant to carry shame. And confessing our wrongs, humbling ourselves, brings that shame into the light and it deprives it of its power over us. Because what keeps us holding shame is our fear that we will not be loved if people see who we really are. And I wanna tell you this, you are already more loved than you can imagine. You are so loved, more than you can imagine. By the Father, by Jesus, but you know what? By us, we love you. We love you, our family loves you, I love you. I'm so glad you're here this morning. You made me happy by showing up. It makes me happy to look out here and to see faces and to know that there are people on our campuses watching. You, you give me joy when you do that. Like our family, our church family loves you. And if you need to talk to someone, like you're not gonna be judged. So shake that thought off and find someone to share, humble yourself with that can help you, right? So I wanna talk really quick about the prophetic significance of Yom Kippur. It provides, um, Yom Kippur provides, provides prophetic insight regarding the second coming of Jesus, the Messiah, and the restoration of the nation or ethnic Israel. In other words, the actual geographic space of Israel, because it also points to the time when the Jewish people will see Jesus, they'll recognize him as their Messiah and they will receive him as their Messiah, okay? And this is prophesied actually in the book of Zechariah. Chapter 12, verse 10, it says, and I will pour out on the house of David, this is a prophecy about the end times, I will pour out on the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem, speaking to the fact that this is gonna happen in Israel, a spirit of grace and supplication or repentance. And they will look on me as one they have pierced and they will mourn for him as one mourns for an only child and grieve bitterly for him as one grieves for a firstborn son. This is talking about the time when Jesus appears and the people of Israel see him and they realize, oh my gosh, it was him. It was him. He is the Messiah and they will grieve and they will wail and they will mourn, but they'll also repent and receive him. So that's what it, and that's what it points to. And it also points to the judgment coming to the nations. So remember we talked about mercy has to be poured out, but then judgment has to be poured out as well. So at the coming of Christ, there's gonna be judgment poured out on the nations, on people who remain after the days of tribulation. And look, Jesus prophesies about this judgment in Matthew 24, 29 through 41. He says, immediately after the distress of those days, talking about the tribulation, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light. The stars will fall from the sky and the heavenly bodies will be shaken. Then will appear the sign of the son of man in heaven. And then all the peoples of the earth will mourn. See, that, that harkens back to the verse in Zechariah. They will mourn when they see the Son of Man coming in the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. And he will send his angels with a loud trumpet call, shofar, and they will gather his elect from the four winds and from one end of the heavens to the other. This is the judgment. This is the second part of the day of atonement being fulfilled. And Jesus also in Matthew 25, 31 through 33, he tells his disciples the parable of the sheep and the goats. This is also talking about that time when the son of man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, he will sit on his glorious throne. Where is his glorious throne? It's gonna be in Jerusalem. 
He's gonna sit on his glorious throne and all the nations will be gathered to him, meaning all the people of all the nations. And he will separate the people one from another as a shepherd separates sheep from a goats. He'll put the sheep on his right and the goats on the left. And then he goes on to explain that. But Jesus is going to come. And the first time he came, he came to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. But when he comes again, he's gonna finish that sentence, dot, dot, dot. And he's gonna come to proclaim the day of the vengeance of our God. And justice, real justice, that our hearts cry out for because we know that we were not born for injustice and that this world is not what it was meant to be. And we know that it should not be corrupt. Jesus is gonna come and he's gonna set all that right. And when he does, nobody else is gonna be able to enter the kingdom because the time of the year of the Lord's favor will be over for this, this generation of people that have lived here. And that's why he graciously delays his return. I think that's one of the reasons he's waiting for more sons and daughters to come back home. I'm sure there are other things that he's waiting for as well, but it is by his mercy and grace that he hasn't come to do this yet because he's waiting for people to receive the mercy part of atonement, right? We're still in the day of the Lord's favor. So we wanna be on the right side of judgment. I know I do, do you? So that's the day of atonement. And Stephal's gonna talk more about that next week. But I wanna finish up on, the, on Sukkot, the Feast of Tabernacles, because I really love this part. This is what happens after the judgment. Sukkot, you say Sukkot, Sukkot, Feast of Booths or Feast of Tabernacles. And uh, this, you can see this talked about in Deuteronomy 6, 16 through 17. It says, three times a year, all your men must appear before the Lord your God at the place he will choose, at the festival of unleavened bread, the festival of weeks, and the festival of tabernacles, Sukkot. No one should appear before the Lord empty-handed, just like Stovall talked about earlier. Each of you must bring a gift in proportion to the way the Lord your God has blessed you. So Sukkot takes place five days after Yom Kippur, and it is the most joyous festival of the year. And just like all the other feasts, it has several layers of meaning. One of the layers of meaning is agricultural. It's the very last feast of the year. All the, other, all the fruits and the vegetables and everything, the grain has been harvested. This is the fruit harvest. And it represents the last crops before the long time of you know, not being able to plant and reap and sow. So everyone's happy about the fruit that they have gotten from their harvest. And so it's very, very joyous. It's really like a time of dancing and singing and praise and just eating good food together. It's everything we love. It's like Thanksgiving would be for us, but probably better. So anyway, and then the Jews are commanded in Leviticus 23 to build these booths or sukkah to commemorate the time that God brought them through wilderness and brought them into the promised land and that they were living in temporary dwellings. You know, they had to set up camp and stay there for a bit and then they would pick up camp and follow the cloud or the fire into their next place. And so it commemorated their time as a people in the wilderness when they were following God and um, he was bringing them out from slavery into their promised land. Can you show a picture of the sukkah? Do we have one, what that would look like today? We have, okay, so this is a picture of what a sukkah might look like today. It's a really pretty sukkah. I wouldn't mind having that in my backyard. But it's supposed to be built of, and they have other pictures that are more like tents. They have some that are like these huge big tents that are like wedding feasts. You would have your whole family there and they would have like a wedding tent. You know what I'm talking about, those giant ones? But those, they're, they're basically supposed to be, the main thing is it's supposed to be made of a temporary material. And if at all possible, you should live in your tent and eat your meals in your tent for the whole seven days. And you know, it's kind of that symbol of God taking you through the wilderness. And we've all been through wilderness seasons in our lives, right? And when we're in the wilderness seasons, we hate them. I hate wilderness seasons. <laughs> I don't like them at all. But somehow it's funny when you get through the wilderness seasons of your life, and you look back over them, there's something and he goes, that was good times. That was good times with me and God. <laughs> I mean, you hate it while you're in it, 
But in that time, it's just this, this feeling of following God where you're, you feel both safe and insecure at the same time. Like I'm safe in God and I know he's got this, but there's this insecurity of not knowing how it's gonna fa- turn out. And there's this insecurity of not knowing the plan. And there's this insecurity of not knowing every day what the next step is. And you just sort of have to say, okay, God, where are we going today? But you learn to trust God in the wilderness. And yes, you have to sort of hold everything loosely because you don't know where, you're, you know where you're going next. It's just like the temporary shelters. They, they couldn't own land. They couldn't like put down their roots. They couldn't lay foundations and build structures because they might have to move at any moment. And there's this intimacy that comes when we follow God through the wilderness seasons of our lives. They couldn't just get comfortable because they had to be ready to see the, the pillar of fire, the pillar of smoke moving. And they would go, oh, God's moving now. It's time for us to pick up and move with him. And those times are certainly uncomfortable because we crave security, we crave regularity, we crave routine. And so kind of messing with that messes us up a little bit. But I don't know about you, but when I look over my wilderness seasons after the fact, I think those were good times. Those were times where I felt really close to God. And this is what Sukkot is meant to, is meant to recall to the people of Israel. And I love that God actually has them go, in a sense, like camp out. So how much fun would that be for your kids? Our whole family is gonna camp out for seven days. We're gonna eat in the tent. We're gonna, um, your grandparents are gonna camp out too. And your cousins are gonna camp out too. And everybody, you're like, no, but that would not be fun for my family. Um, y'all are like, oh my gosh. But everyone, our whole neighborhood is gonna camp out. We're all gonna have tents in our backyards and we're all gonna camp out. And everyone's gonna be picnicking for seven days. Like your kids would think that was awesome. Like how cool that God made this thing that yes, to the, the, as the older you got, the more revelation you would get from it and the deeper the significance would be. But for kids, it's like, when are we gonna have Sukkot again? That was awesome. So everybody from every generation would get to experience, not just here, but experience the deliverance of, the, of God for the people. But Sukkot also has a future fulfillment. And I mean, you would, we, we can't read about the tent and the tabernacle without thinking about the future fulfillment of this feast. Because the Feast of Booths is gonna also be, it was also fulfilled when Jesus came to earth. You see, the Bible says that the word became flesh. And first in the book of John chapter one, the word became flesh and dwelt among us. But do you know in the Greek, that word dwelt is actually tabernacled? The word became flesh and tabernacled among us. In other words, Jesus put on and lived in a temporary home of flesh and blood to come be with us. The presence of God in the place of God dwelling with the people of God. Exactly the way he originally intended it. You see, Eden was the people of God, Adam and Eve, dwelling in the place of God, Eden, enjoying the presence of God, unfettered, unhindered, with no shame. And every time since Eden that God established a covenant and made an outpost, whether it was a tabernacle or a temple, he was reestablishing to a greater degree the people of God, the place of God, and the presence of God. He was sanctifying a space on the earth where he could be with his people. But when Jesus came, he was the presence of God. He, in his flesh, was the temple of God. He poured out the Holy Spirit, so now we are the sanctified space. We're the temple of God. 
But he took on that temporary tent of flesh and dwelt among us, tabernacled among us. Why? So that we could throw off this tent of flesh and go, not, go from a temporary life here to an eternal life with him. He came into the temporal, put on flesh and blood to live with us so that we could shed our old body in this temporal world and go make a home in eternity with him. Is that amazing? And Paul talks often about this when he talks about the resurrection of our bodies. You know, it's interesting that God resurrects our bodies. Like, it just seems like, why would you resurrect our bodies? Like, <laughs> these aren't these like the bad part of us? Isn't this our flesh? Isn't this the bad part? No, God, actually, it's, it's not in the sense that God's original intent for it was not bad. God gave us physical bodies before the fall. His, he created us in his image. He created us with physical bodies. And God is going to redeem that decaying flesh and he's gonna make it what he originally intended it to be, which is just like Jesus after his ascension, when he was, after his resurrection, when he was on earth. See, God doesn't throw the body away. He sanctifies the body while we're here and he res resurrects it and renews it in eternity with him. Isn't that awesome? We're not gonna be these disembodied spirits floating around on a cloud. No, you know, we're not gonna be these amorphous amoebas like, you know, and you see them in like a jellyfish. No, we're gonna, I'm gonna be Carrie. I'm gonna look like Carrie. You're gonna recognize me. I will not have, but there will be no decay. There's no signs of decay on my body, no wrinkles, no bunions, no, um, no dry mouth, no <laughs> gray hairs, no, uh, you know, one leg shorter than the others. There's none of that. Everything is perfect, but it's still me. I'm still me. Lisa will still be Lisa. Terry and Debbie will still be Terry and Debbie. You won't be married in heaven, which is kind of sad because I can't imagine not being married to Stovall. I'm just gonna trust Jesus that it's gonna be, I'll be okay when I get there because that makes me really sad. But um, it'll, it'll all be good when we get there. We'll know each other. So he'll, and then Jesus will work all that out. But um, but you know, the, 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 it, we're gonna have these resurrected bodies, these tents. We're gonna shed this earthly tent, tear it down, and we're gonna move to heaven with him. And then the ultimate fulfillment, it's my favorite, one of my favorite verses in the Bible, can be found in Re Revelation 21, three through four. And I'm gonna call the um, worship band up and I'm gonna hand off to the campus pastors in just a couple of minutes. But um, ultimately, Jesus is gonna come. He's gonna establish his millennial reign on earth. And he is, he is gonna dwell with us here. But after a time is fulfilled, okay, and Stephon will talk about more this next week, there's gonna be a new heaven and a new earth. In other words, this earth will be done away with and God is gonna create heaven and earth anew. And it says this in Revelation 21, three through four. It says, I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, look, God's dwelling place, his tabernacle is now among the people and he will dwell with them and they will be his people, and God himself will be with him and be their God. And he will wipe every tear from their eyes. He's gonna wipe every tear from your eye, every single one. And there'll be no more death or mourning or crying or pain. This is what Sukkot looks toward for the former things have all passed away. Is that amazing? You see, Sukkot looks forward to the time when we shed this earthly tabernacle and yes, 
Jesus comes and reigns and we are gonna be an eternity with him, but it also looks forward to the time that God comes down in the new heavens and the new earth to live among us. And that is the time when everything that is of this former place, all the death, all the decay, the tears, the pain, the crying, will be banished and gone forever and ever and ever. And we will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. We will be with Him forever and ever. And it reminds us over and over again every year, you know, this world is not our home. It's really, really not. And it's hard to come to grips with that when we lose things, when we, you know, when we might lose our house or lose a job or struggle financially. Or, you know, just maybe we're believing God for something and it doesn't come to pass and we just get discouraged. I had a friend in high school that had a crisis of faith and became an atheist because she prayed to win a tennis match and she didn't win. Like it's sad, but sometimes people do, we put so, she puts so much stock in this world. And yes, that was an immature thing, but she never circled back. It just was like, she couldn't get over it. But this is not our home. And this feast of Sukkot is meant to remind us, you just here for a little while. You know, the the pain that you have here, the trials that you face, they're just a tiny little bit of trouble in face of the glory that is gonna be revealed to you when Christ returns. And that we have Christ in us, the hope of glory, dwelling in us through the Holy Spirit until that day comes. And so as we go forward from today, I hope you understand a little bit more about Sukkot. Campus pastors can go ahead and come up and close out. But I wanna leave you on this thought. We've talked a lot about judgment. I wanna leave you with the thought of the great hope. Because if Sukkot is about anything, you could say it's about hope. The hope that we have our hope and confidence in Him. We don't lose our confidence. Our hope is anchored beyond the veil. Sukkot is an expression of us being tied to that anchor and remembering that the day will come when God the Father will come down. He'll wipe away everything that's wrong with this earth. He'll wipe away every tear. He'll take away every pain. And we get to start anew with Him in the new heavens and the new earth. Amen. Thank you for tuning in to today's podcast. For more information about Celebration Church or to get in touch with us, please visit celebration.org. 